digital assets are here to stay in one form or another and whatever their value is, their sort of external value to the to the non-digital world, they are going to be around for, forever ultimately in one form or another. And it's already the case that some designer goods are, are more expensive or as expensive in the metaverse um, as they are in real life. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. The University of Law offers a range of undergraduate and postgraduate courses and master's degrees alongside an award-winning pro bono clinic so you can build up your legal experience while studying. And their experienced career service will enable you to put your best foot forward when launching your legal career. The courses are employment focused and based on real legal practice so you'll be better prepared for the workplace. Part-time and online study options are available so you can work and study at the same time. Click the link in the description box of the podcast to find out more about the courses on offer. Hello everyone, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie, I'm a current law student, future trainee solicitor and I'm the host of today's episode. Joining me today is Dan Wyatt partner at RPC who specialises in commercial litigation with a focus on civil fraud and crypto and digital asset disputes. During the episode, Dan and I discussed cryptocurrency and digital assets from a commercial and legal point of view. Dan explains the types of claims that are usually in dispute over digital assets and talks about Lirania Deborah Osborne against one, persons unknown, and two, Ozone Networks, which is a novel case to the English courts and a milestone in the legal treatment of NFTs under English law. Dan also provides his opinion on how digital assets could transpire into the metaverse, whether cryptocurrency could ever become legal tender in the UK, and lastly provides exceptional advice to students as to how to become commercially aware become a successful trainee solicitor and be on track to partnership. Dan, thanks so much for joining us here today. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, thank you. Good to meet you. Well, I'm going to get straight in with the questions. Got a lot to ask you today. Um, but before we do go into the bulk of the um, I suppose, conversation today, I thought it would be nice if we could start off by um, asking you to introduce yourself uh, perhaps by explaining what your role um, as partner entails at RPC and about the type of work that your area of expertise covers. Sure. So um, I'm Dan White. I'm a partner in RPC's commercial disputes team. Uh, my area of expertise is uh, commercial litigation. Uh, and within that also sits uh, civil fraud and uh, increasingly over the last few years, crypto and digital assets uh, disputes and fraud. My day-to-day role as a, as a partner, which um, will be the same for most partners at other firms, of course, um, is, uh, is quite uh, varied. So on the one hand, uh, I'm responsible for, for doing and delivering the legal work, which is obviously the, 
sort of the thing that you uh, first think of as a law firm partner, but also um, I'm responsible for winning the work. So there's a bit of a, a sort of salesperson uh, part of the job as well, making sure that I'm meeting people and um, and getting opportunities to, to win new work for the firm. Um, and also as a partner, you're responsible ultimately for running the business as well. So making sure that the firm is financially in good health, um, dealing with recruitment, graduate recruitment and, and associate recruitment and so forth. Now, those latter two things are, are dealt with uh, at a firm like RPC. Um, you know, we have a lot of help for that sort of stuff. We have, you know, in, internal CEOs and, and HR people and so forth. Um, so my role is, is mostly focused on the first two bits, which is doing the legal work and, and winning the legal work, so getting it through the door. Um, but certainly, you know, you are a business owner as a partner, so it does cover all of those areas. Well, sounds really interesting and, and really varied. I I always like to ask guests on the show, um, well, partners mostly, how they do, um, how they think maybe the, the best ways are to win new business. If you had to give like perhaps your top two ways of the um, ways that you like to in, engage with clients, what would you say those are? Um, I think it's important to be um, to keep in touch with people so that you're sort of in their minds. Uh, there's a lot of lawyers out there, obviously, um, and it's not always people's first choice to hang out with you necessarily. Um, but I think you have to make an effort to keep in touch with people um, to make sure that they, they don't forget you. And then when you are seeing people, whether that's um, just for a coffee or a lunch or a dinner or whatever, um, making sure that you're you know interesting and engaging and, and fun a fun person to have around. Um, there's nothing worse than having a really dull conversation with somebody. So I think it's it's important to sort of bring your your the best version of yourself, whatever that may be, um, to any meeting with a prospective client um, to make sure that they actually enjoy working with you. It's sort of a it's taken as a bit of a given most of the time that you can do the work to a high standard. Um, so I think the next the next most important thing for a client is to make sure they actually want to work with you um, on cases that can last for for months or for years. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that was a, a question that um, I've been asked in training contract interviews before. So um, I think that's a really useful piece of advice. So thanks for sharing that, Dan. Um, so why did you choose to become a solicitor and specialise in commercial litigation with a focus on civil fraud and crypto and digital assets? It was a little bit by accident. I, I thought a law degree would be a good degree to have. Um, I've got no history of, uh, of a legal profession, legal professionals in my family. So um, I was sort of the first one to do a law degree. Um, and then having having done the law degree or having done half of it at least, I thought that um, it would you know, be good to try it out as, as a professional lawyer um, rather than doing something completely unrelated. So I had a, had a go and applied for a few training contracts and so forth and, and got one happily. Um, so it wasn't a sort of a deliberate decision that I made age 10 or whatever to pursue a, a long-held desire to be a lawyer. Um, I actually thought at that stage that I would want to be a corporate lawyer um, doing deals and you know, M&A and, and so forth. Um, and then this 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 was, um, I quickly changed my mind when I started my training contract. And I think that's the beauty of a training contract is that you get to experience different areas of a law firm and different practice areas. So I, I did a couple of, um, uh, I, did, I did a corporate seat and I did a couple of other non-contentious seats in my first year as a trainee and very quickly realised that that wasn't for me after all. And in fact, when I then started my second year as a litigator in a litigation seat, so I immediately realised that that was what I wanted to do and found it far more interesting and engaging. Um, and so, so it was very clear to me very quickly that I wanted to be a litigator as soon as I did that seat. 
And so I think that's, um, you know, as I say, the beauty of the training contract is that you get to experience different areas and you might not necessarily end up doing um, what you what you think you would be doing at the start of your training contract. Yeah, I mean, you do hear these stories quite a lot about people um, not getting the the top choices of, of their um, seat preference um, and then absolutely falling in love with it and, yeah, qualifying into that practice area. So, um, yeah, the lesson I've taken away from that is keep an open mind. Um, so, yeah, that's, exactly. it's nice to hear your story. Yeah. At this point now, I'm just going to go into the, I suppose, an introduction of crypto and digital assets. Um, and perhaps for our listeners who are unfamiliar with the terms, Dan, if you could please summarise what is meant by crypto and digital assets, because they're slightly different, aren't they? Uh, yes, uh, no problem. So um, a digital asset, with it, without wanting to state the obvious, is an asset that is held digitally um, rather than physically. Uh, and cryptocurrency is a type of digital asset, so it's a subset of digital assets. Um, and the, and the, the term digital asset is much broader than, than just crypto, so it includes other things um, such as non-fungible tokens or NFTs, um, which you'll have heard of uh, as well, I'm sure. Um, all of these sorts of digital assets are held on um, technology called the blockchain. Um, and a blockchain, like its name implies, uh, is basically a way of structuring lots of data into chunks or blocks that are then strung together in a chain. Um, and the blockchain uh, can be summed up in, in three words, really. The first is ledger, the second is public, and the third is decentralized. So um, the ledger is essentially a digital file that sets out who owns which digital assets, so Bitcoin or, or whatever else, or an NFT, um, and uh, transfers in ownership of that particular assets are recorded by changing uh, the ledger. Um, so it's basically just a massive record of which transactions are taking place, who owns what, um, and everything is updated sort of constantly. Um, as for public, all transactions on blockchains are public, so anybody can download a complete history of the transactions that have taken place uh, on, for example, uh, Bitcoin, um, or view any of them on a on what's called a block explorer, where you can uh, when you can look at transactions um, that have taken place. And there's uh, a block explorer, for example, is is blockchain.com. Um, and the third the third word decentralized. Uh, this is this is perhaps the most important in some respects. Um, because uh, the participants in the in the network in the particular blockchain network have their own copy of the ledger, um, and there's no centralized master copy. Uh, for example, in in the financial system, you'd have a bank holding a record of, of transactions, uh, and that doesn't happen in in digital assets. Um, the the copy of the ledger and all of the transactions are held by multiple parties uh, called nodes. Uh, which are the entities that sort of hold and administer the ledger. Um, and the way that everybody agrees what is the correct copy of the ledger and what transactions are taking place is, is known as the consensus principle, because it involves all of the nodes in the network agreeing that a particular transaction has taken place and is, is proper. Um, and that's an important uh, fraud prevention uh, tool because you can't just go in and amend the ledger yourself um, because that one copy of the ledger will not be consistent with the other thousands of copies of the ledger. So it will be obvious um, that something has been tampered with and the transaction wouldn't be accepted. So it's quite a useful way of uh, of, of making sure that everything is, is as it should be. 
Um, so, so yeah, so, so they're digital assets and that's in very broad terms how they're held on the blockchain. Well, thank you very much. And I'm sure many will agree with me um, for something that is actually quite a complex and complicated topic. You've explained that really clearly. So thank you very much. So when there are disputes involving cryptocurrency and digital assets, what is actually typically in dispute? Um, so you can really have a dispute about uh, pretty much anything uh, that you would uh, have a dispute about in the, in the sort of non-digital world. Um, so it, it can be a very di diverse range of issues. Um, but I think there's probably three sort of classic uh, buckets of disputes. So, so one is ownership. Um, so who owns a particular digital asset? Uh, has that party agreed to transfer it to somebody else but failed to do so? Um, has there been a fraud, for example? Um, so those sorts of cases come up quite commonly. And a lot of the cases uh, that, have, that have happened so far in the digital asset space have related to frauds uh, and ultimately who owns a particular digital asset. Um, the second type are, are claims related to the value of an asset. So has an asset or its value been misrepresented during a sale, perhaps? Um, how much is that asset actually worth? And, and do you need the courts to assist in determining that? Um, and then the third type of claim uh, is, is a claim relating to risk. So um, has anyone misrepresented the risk of trading a particular digital asset, uh, either negligently or perhaps fraudulently? Have they said that an asset is, is a safe investment, whereas in fact it's not at all, it's very volatile, um, that, that sort of thing. And then if, if a risk of trading a digital asset has come to pass, so a trader has lost a substantial amount of money, who should be liable for that? Is it just is it just the trader's fault because um, you know they traded a risky investment and they shouldn't and they shouldn't have done and they've lost money, or is somebody else to blame for some reason um, for the trader's uh, situation? So those, you know, there are all sorts of claims, but they're they're sort of the three types that we most commonly see. Sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, so, what are some of the main tasks of an associate and maybe a trainee as well within the disputes resolution practice area? Um, and if we could maybe focus on cybercrime. Yeah, sure. So, um, it's very varied work um, in commercial disputes generally, but particularly also cybercrime. Um, and so, the tasks that you'll be doing as an associate or a trainee. Uh, can range from uh, sort of drafting work, so drafting notes of advice to clients, um, helping with drafting claim forms, application notices, um, that sort of thing. Um, also helping with uh, drafting witness evidence, so the evidence that you file at court to explain your, your sort of position on the factual um, issues in a case that can also be, be done by, so well, can be done by trainees and also you know, is led by associates generally. Um, so th those sorts of tasks are the things that people tend to like to do the most. The drafting tasks are tend to be the most interesting jobs. Um, there are also less uh, interesting and glamorous tasks as well. Uh, is the reality for trainees and associates, particularly on really big cases. Um, you can spend a lot of time if you're on a big case doing a disclosure review, for example, um, which is looking for, for relevant documents amongst many thousands of documents. Um, you can also, well, you are also in charge of um, preparing bundles for court hearings and so forth. Um, and both of those jobs can, can be less uh, engaging at times, but um, they're extremely important to the running of the case. And, um, and the good thing about them, in one sense, is that you are, as, a, as an associate and as a, as a trainee, you're responsible for delivering that with, 
much less oversight than sort of drafting where you know the work that you draft will be will be amended by senior lawyers and partners and barristers and so forth so you get a lot more sort of responsibility i think in the disclosure area and and the bundling area so it really is up to you to deliver what needs to be delivered on on time and in a good in a good format so a huge range of, of tasks for associates um and often particularly in the cyber cyber space um things will have to be very quickly so you have to get up to speed on a case um and and prepare uh written documents and the bundles and so forth very quickly over the course of you know a day or two to make sure that you get into court really quickly um if you're trying to to freeze frozen assets for uh, if you're trying to freeze digital assets for example so that can be pretty um pretty hard uh you know long hours um but also pretty exciting and pretty uh pretty um satisfying when you get the result that you need um, after two or three days of really hard work yeah well thanks so much for sharing that just touching back on what you were saying um about the the bundling um it just sounds and sorry the bundling and that not always being you know checked as something as um a drafting exercise maybe um it just it highlights that they're the person doing it has to have such immense attention to detail and focus um and it's just you know doing these what somebody may think is a small job um but making sure that job is done really well and that's something that i've really noticed speaking to different professionals um legal professionals is they keep highlighting that point so um yeah it was um good to hear you say that as well just uh, reinforces it yeah, that, that's right, and I think um, you'll you'll never you'll never have fear quite like um, being at a being a trainee at a court hearing when the judge says, "Oh, um, you know, where is this particular document, or what page number is this?" And there's sort of a pause. You're on sort of tenterhooks as you're waiting for the page to come up, and oh, have I put it in the right place? Have I have I done the bundle correct? Have I made a mistake? Um, and you know that sort of sigh of relief as you realise that that you know, that page is okay. So the whole court hearing as a trainee. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of a lot of pressure because it has to be right, and if it's not right, um, you know, you might get a nice judge who's relaxed about it, but if it's a very highly charged, difficult case, you might get the really grumpy judge that is really really annoyed that a, a document isn't where it should be, um, and so that that's where you really feel the pressure. And once you've had a hearing like that, and perhaps a hearing where you've made a mistake, even uh, that's when you'll really realise just how important um, it is to, to to have attention to detail and to get those things right. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I've got beads of sweat forming, and I'm not even in that situation. So yeah, it does sound um, uh, does sound um, slightly frightening, but <laughs> yeah. Mm. Anyway, um, now you've mentioned NFTs a couple of times, and I was just wondering, what do you find most interesting about NFTs, maybe from a, a lawyer's point of view? Um, so I think the most interesting thing about NFTs is probably what they could be used for in the future. So it's obviously uh, interesting that somebody might pay tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds for a, a unique picture of, a, of an ape, which is uh, currently a lot of the use of NFTs. Um, but I think the more interesting thing is, as I say, what they can use for in the future. Uh, they could potentially revolutionise the way we store certain pieces of, uh, of data um, and also identify ourselves. So, for example, um, in the future, we might well have uh, passports in NFT form, uh, and or driving licenses 
um, and other things such as medical records or certificates from your degree and, and so forth could be stored in, in NFT form. And I think they're, they're the sort of really uh, innovative uses of NFTs that, that could be really helpful in the future. Um, and I think it's going to be very you know, exciting to see that develop and see, see what the tech is used for ultimately. Um, and also, you know, the, the legal cases that, that arise out of those uses. Excellent. Thank you. I'd like to take a moment to speak about the University of Law, which is the university I decided to study my LPC at. The University of Law is the sponsor of this podcast and makes it possible for us to continue bringing these episodes to you. So we really appreciate you supporting us by supporting our sponsors. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. The University of Law's experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life legal experience which can boost employability. They offer a range of undergraduate and postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students excel at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. If you'd like to find out more about the courses on offer, please click the link in the description box of the podcast. Uh, so I thought that we could talk a little bit about the um, Lavinia Deborah Osborne case, if I pronounced that correctly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, can you please tell us what the facts of the case were, what was in dispute and, um, and the outcome, please? Sure. So, um, uh, Ms. Osborne uh, had uh, a series of, uh, of NFTs stolen. Effectively, um, they weren't in her in her wallet where they were held uh, when when she checked one day, uh, and so the case was about that. Really, it was about the theft of the NFTs um, and and what should happen. Um, she identified using one of the public um, blockchain tracing sites that I mentioned before. She identified where the NFTs had been had been moved to, so they'd been moved to another person's wallet. And because of that, uh, she was able to apply to court um, with a pretty clear idea of what she wanted, um, which was to freeze those assets where they were being held and to freeze them uh, means that the English court says that they must not be moved until further notice while the case continues to trial. Um, and she also uh, sought uh, the court's assistance for various disclosure orders. And this is the typical uh, suite of relief that people seek when they've had their digital assets stolen. So it's normally freezing relief, freezing injunction and disclosure relief. And the disclosure relief is really important because although she could see where the NFTs were, were sat, you know, the wallet they were held in. What she didn't know was whose wallet that was, who it belonged to. So she didn't actually know who to sue. And that's very common in digital asset disputes. So her claim was against persons unknown, uh, which is the sort of the legal phrase that we use when we when we, when we know where assets are, we want to try and trace them and freeze them, but we don't actually know who, who has stolen um, them in the first place. So um, that's what happened. She applied to court. They weren't particularly valuable NFTs, but they were quite sentimentally valued to her, um, valuable to her, and she wanted to have them back, which is fair enough, um, because they are they are unique. Um, so she sought that relief. She was granted that relief, 
Um, and in, in the course of granting that relief, the English court um, confirmed two things, which was, which, which was the first time it had done so in respect of NFTs. So the first thing was to confirm that NFTs are property uh, and that, uh, or at least there's a good arguable case that they're property. Um, so at, at this stage of the proceedings, um, you don't have, uh, Ms. Osborne didn't have to prove that, that NFTs were property on the balance of probabilities. What she had to prove was that there was ultimately a good arguable case um, that, that they were a good enough case that the court would um, uh, would order the, the freezing really and disclosure relief that she sought. So the court agreed to that standard, which is a lower standard, but still an important development. And the court agreed that NFTs are property like cryptocurrency. Um, and the second um, thing that the court found to the same standard um, was that um, the, the stolen NFTs were being held by the unknown fraudsters, the persons unknown, um, as constructive trustees uh, on behalf of uh, Ms. Osborne. Um, and that's important because uh, it, it increases the, the range and the power of remedies that you can seek um, in, in the proceedings uh, to ultimately get your, um, get your stolen NFTs back in the longer term. So those are the two novel findings in that case. Wow, sounds like a, a big, important case. So did she ever get her NFTs back? Um, there hasn't been any public reporting of it, um, so I'm not I'm not yet sure. I mean, it's a reasonably recent case, so if if it is going, if it's proceeding uh, along the various stages of trial, perhaps, um, then we wouldn't yet have heard because it will take some time to get there. Um, it may well be having got that uh, court order, all those court orders, plural, that the people who stole the NFTs have, have uh, spoken to her and settled the case, um, but we, we don't publicly know at the moment. Does she does she have the tangible things? Um, do you, like what exactly were the NFTs? Are you allowed, are you allowed to tell us? Uh, yes. So, well, the, the court judgment uh, does describe them. I, I forget the exact detail, but they were um, sort of artwork pieces of, of NFTs. Right. Um, so, um, essentially, a, you know, a, dig- a digital image of some of some sort. Right. I was just wondering if she actually had the image at home with her to um, at least give her some kind of comfort. But um... well, no, no doubt she could, um, yeah, display a, a copy of the NFT in, in principle. Um, but obviously, the whole point of NFTs and the value in them is that you have the unique original NFT. Um, so yeah, having a, having a screenshot of it on your phone or something isn't isn't quite the same. Albeit, it does the same same job to have it on your phone background but it doesn't obviously have the the same legal value that the underlying nft has of course well i hope um, mrs osborne gets it back soon um so i uh, was hoping that we could do some future gazing now at this point um so i'm wondering dan what do you think um well what place do you think cryptocurrency and digital assets um will have in the metaverse good question if you'd asked me uh, six months or, or more ago before the crypto winter, um, I'd have said, you know, without doubt, a very large place um, in the in the metaverse. Um, there's obviously a bit more uncertainty now because of the, the scale of the crash that's taken place and this extended crypto winter, which is uh, unlike anything we've seen before, uh, even in, you know, the, the sort of the short time that crypto has existed. Um, but I think, I think the reality is that... Um, you know, it still will have a large, a large uh, role to play in the in the metaverse in time um, for digital payments and for uh, collection of digital assets. 
Um, but yeah, yeah, it will just take time, I think, to come back from where it's come from, uh, where, where it is at the moment, sorry. Um, and we'll just have to see how, how things develop. I think ultimately digital assets are here to stay in one form or another and whatever their value is, that sort of external value to the, to the non-digital world. Um, so I think, um, you know, they are going to be around for forever, ultimately in one form or another. Um, and it's already the case that some designer goods are, are more expensive or as expensive, um, or at least they were pre crypto winter in the metaverse, um, as they are in real life. So there's, there's been a few examples of designer handbags, for example, um, actually being more expensive to buy in the metaverse than their, than their real life equivalent, which, you know, to, to, to some people might seem a bit crazy. Um, but I think it just reflects, uh, you know, how, how much demand there is for, for digital assets at the moment and how they are a bit of a, a bit of a craze and, and probably not a passing one, even if, even if there is this prolonged winter at the moment. Yeah, well, it's an exciting um, topic to follow, I think. Now, we've spoken about NFTs being classed as property. Do you think that it's fair to say that cryptocurrency could never become legal tender due to, well, due to cryptocurrency as well being classified as property by quite a substantial amount of case law? Um, I, I, don't think, I don't think it's fair to say that it, it will never you know, be classified as as um, legal tender, um, just because of these findings uh, in in the English court at the moment, I think we're in very early days of crypto adoption, um, particularly in the mainstream. And I think we'll have to just see how things develop and where things end up ultimately. Um, there's certainly a lot of talk at the moment about various nations issuing their own state-backed uh, digital currencies, um, and if that gathers steam, particularly in the sort of uh, more developed world. Um, then it would obviously be surprising uh, if the UK didn't follow suit and other uh, you know, large um, developed uh, jurisdictions. Um, but I think we'll just have to see uh, where things get to. Excellent. Well, thank you for your insight into the future there. So moving um, into the part of the interview where we give advice to our student lawyers. Um, so if you could perhaps... Um, explain in your opinion what the top qualities of a trainee solicitor are and an associate that's on their way or hopes to be on their way to um, partner? Uh, sure, so there's all sorts of obvious answers to that that you'll hear all the time, um, like diligence and resilience and hardworking and commercial awareness and all those sorts of things. And they're obviously all super important in their own way um, and particularly as you're sort of trying to progress through uh, being an associate and making partner. Um, the skills you need do change slightly and, and the commercial awareness piece and the ability to win work becomes more and more important. Um, but you know, at the other end of the scale as a trainee, um, you know, it's really important just to do your, you know, make sure that what you're doing is perfect. So the bundling was an example. Um, so it's slightly perhaps on a, you know, the, the smaller chunky chunks of things that you're doing have to be have to be done very well. Um, and, uh, and with attention to detail, as you mentioned earlier. But I think my, my mantra, which I've sort of lived by my whole career and still do now when thinking about what clients need, um, I always just think, and I, and I certainly thought this as a trainee and as an associate, how do I make um, the person's life easier who I'm working for? So as a trainee, the actual supervisor, whether associate partner, um, as an associate, it's, it's the partner. Um, and also in both cases, it's also the, the end client as well. Um, and for me now, it's obviously, you know, mostly the client, but also perhaps a senior partner on a case I'm working with. 
And I think if that's your mindset, if you always just think, well, what, what will make the partner's life easier? What will make the client's life easier? A lot of the other behaviours and things that you have to do to be a good trainee and a good associate uh, follow. So, you know, do I need to work late tonight so that the partner has an easier life by having the document at first thing in the morning, the next morning, those sorts of things. So that, you know, that diligence comes into that, hard work and comes into that resilience if we're doing that for weeks on end, you know, all, all of those sorts of behaviours are driven, I think, if, if that's your overarching question. Um, so I've always found that's, that's been quite a good way of looking at things uh, during my career. I think that's excellent advice. Thank you very much for sharing that. I mean, I'm sure that this differs for um, different pieces of work. But when when you give pieces of work to associates or trainees, what kind of questions do you think are best for um, trainees or associates to ask you in order to ensure that they are completing that piece of work to the best of their ability? Um, as you say, it, it obviously varies massively from uh, from task to task. I think I think the key is um, you know that it's it's you, you need to make sure you understand the task fully so that you can produce the right output. So if there is any doubt, it is important to ask questions about whatever you're confused about or whatever you need more information about. Um, but I also think sometimes when you're when you're when when a partner gives you a piece of work. Um, it can be worth going away and having a think about it first before sort of blurting out, um, you know, the first three questions that come to the top of your head. Um, because sometimes with a bit of a bit of thought and working it out for yourself, um, you might be able to answer some of those questions. And if you can answer them yourself, then that's all to the good, obviously. It may well be that after you've done that and, and you've you've thought it through yourself, you're still you still have questions that you want to ask, and that's obviously completely fine. And it's much better to ask questions at that early stage to make sure that the product you're delivering is exactly what it needs to be rather than trying to, to model through without asking the questions. Um, but I think, yeah, it is important just to, just to, you know, not sort of shoot from the hip too much and ask questions that could, could be a little um, uh, basic perhaps had you just gone away and, and spent a bit of time thinking about it first. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that too. Um, so how do you recommend that student lawyers develop their commercial awareness and increase their ability to talk about um, commercial and legal issues with ease? It really is. Uh, there's, there's no substitute for reading and listening um, to, to, you know, reading papers, reading, uh, you know, weekly updates and, and uh, listening to podcasts, current affairs podcasts, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think, you, you know, you just can't do enough of that ultimately. You know, you also have to have some time to do um, to do other stuff, which is perhaps more interesting day to day. So I'm not suggesting this becomes your entire life, but I think it is important just to skim the news every day, to listen to some current affairs podcasts, to keep abreast of what's happening. Um, and you know, you will then have a good range of of knowledge of things that are going on in the world, the sorts of factors that that um, that are relevant in business deals and and that kind of thing. A few a better view of the economy and what's happening. Uh, in the economy and how that might have, uh, impact upon the legal world so all of those um, things are good so I definitely recommend that uh, and I think it's also really important if you can to get experience of working with law firms and seeing um, you know commercially what happens at law firms whether that's via formal vacation schemes and summer schemes and so forth um, or even just informal work experience for the odd day or two uh, to see how law firms work to see what commercial issues matter to law firms 
Um, and you know, you can't really beat uh, you know being inside a law firm and learning in that way. Yeah, I agree with you. I really like to listen to podcasts and what I what I did when I was well I still do this now I follow people that I really like um, and found people that I like by just typing in I suppose buzzwords like ESG and corporate law yeah and what you tend to find then is something that's not so mainstream where you will hear a discussion about it and that's really nice to listen to as well because there is more of a, a debate going on and you yeah. hear about different people's points of view um, and as well as reading, well, I've uh, started off reading the FT um, and I made a um, kind of like a habit tracker and I made sure that I was reading three articles a day, which may not sound a lot. But, you know, if you're doing that every day for, you know, five days a week, it does all add up. Yeah. And I made sure to split it with things, for example, COVID, um what's happening in China and cryptocurrency as well a, a little bit, but they did kind of change. So, um, yeah, that's um, really good advice that you gave there, Dan. I tried it and um, seemed to pay off. Yeah, and no, I think I think that you're definitely doing the right thing. And, as, you know, being sort of consistent and, and um, uh, you know, doing it every day like you're doing is definitely the key to, to building that, that bank of knowledge. Yeah, it doesn't make it so scary when you do it every day. When you, when you put it down and don't pick it up for a while, it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, as we're approaching the um, end of the interview, I thought that um, it might be nice if you could let us know what your highlight of the working week has been. Um, so it's obviously early on a Monday morning, so it's hard to uh, hard to uh, say that I've had the highlight so far. Uh, other other than this, of course. Um, but uh, I've got a big deadline on Wednesday, as, as as you know, because we discussed that in the context of scheduling. It was meant to be uh, last Wednesday, but we've had an extension, so it's now uh, two days' time. So, um, you know, getting getting that work over the line uh, and and in time for that extended deadline will be will be the highlight of my week. Um, obviously, if we miss the deadline, it will be a very different story. Um, but that's that that hopefully will be the highlight of my week come Wednesday afternoon. Excellent. Well, I keep my fingers crossed for you. Um, and I need to remind myself that it's not Friday and um, I've got a, a nice long week ahead of me. <laughs> so, Dan, before we do um, close the interview, I thought um, it might be nice to ask you if you have any final words of wisdom to share with us. Um, from a career point of view, I'd just say, uh, that this is a career that you know people from all sorts of backgrounds can pursue even if like me you didn't think you wanted to be a law necessarily or you fell into it and you can have a really good career in law um, uh, despite not coming from a legal family and having that background so don't be put off by the fact that it might seem a bit uh, strange or a bit a bit scary to start in this profession without any sort of family background um, and then from a sort of a specific thing as we're talking about digital assets and so forth um, I do think it's worth keeping on top of digital assets generally, um, what's happening and the legal developments, because I think it is, you know, over the last couple of years, it's becoming increasingly prominent in, in my job. Obviously, not everybody will do work related to digital assets, but it is it is popping up increasingly in different areas. So if you can keep on top of those developments um, and and the legal developments that flow from them as well, I think that puts you in, in good, uh, in, stands you in good stead for, for your training contracts when you start. Excellent. And I'm so sorry, I have to ask you one final question off the back of the advice that you've just given. Um, have you had much experience working with smart contracts? 
Uh, I haven't, but a few people in the in our firm have, um, and again, a very you know a very interesting, innovative area, and and huge amounts of questions about how smart contracts could interact with um, you know traditional laws and process um, in England and other jurisdictions. So, uh, as well as um, looking at digital assets and cryptocurrency and so forth, um, it's certainly also worth keeping abreast of developments of smart contracts and seeing where they're being used, because there's certainly huge amounts of scope for them to be very useful um, in large parts of uh, you know business and commerce. Um, so, yeah, definitely keep on top of smart contract developments as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for providing so much interesting and insightful um, advice and for being a guest on the show i've had a great time talking with you and learned a lot um and thank you to everybody who's tuned into this episode of the student lawyer and we'll see you back again in next time thank you very much it's been a pleasure <laughs> thank you thanks To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.